Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode 109. This week, Ken, Donna, and I talk with Jonathan Massey, the new dean at the University of Michigan's Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning. We talk about his approach to architectural education and his previous roles at Syracuse and the California College of the Arts, where he has just finished his deanship this year. We also discuss the world of architectural publishing as it relates to his work with Aggregate. Well, congratulations on the appointment at the University of Michigan. Thank you. It's thrilling to be here. I find that coming here from Syracuse University and then from California College of the Arts, I feel like Taubman College is what you get when you add those two together. And (laughs) it's got elements of the kind of major professional degree granting institution at a major research university that you know, I recognize from Syracuse, but which are even bigger and more illustrious here. And it has that culture of making and working section of digital and material technologies that I absorbed at CCA. So it feels like a very strong fit. So talking about architecture in general, what would you consider to be your own pedagogical stance on architectural education? I think about that in a few different ways, Paul. The first is that I'm someone who studied architecture in a liberal arts context as an undergraduate, did a professional degree at UCLA, worked in practice for a couple of years, and then went back to Princeton for a PhD. And I feel like in my thinking about architecture pedagogy, I'm always working back and forth between uh, a strong professional um, framework and a commitment to preparing future architects for practices of many kinds. But I also think about architecture always in an expanded framework of humanistic thinking and learning and scholarship production. And so I find that I I like to approach teaching and learning questions from simultaneously a disciplinary perspective. How are we transmitting and advancing the most sophisticated, specialized expertise that architects and architecture scholars have developed? And at the same time, bringing that extra disciplinary or kind of broad framing lens, thinking what is the meaning of this research or this creative production for a bigger world? How does it connect to issues of climate change or poverty reduction or economic empowerment or social justice? And how can it be meaningful to audiences and constituencies who don't have a prior interest in architecture? That's maybe the big picture. And then there are all kinds of ways to develop that framework in more detail. Jonathan, I've, I've done a little reading from your aggregate site, and I've been reading the um the piece, the invitation to submit for Black Lives Matter. So I really wanted to get jump right into it and ask you, you seem to have a, which is quite refreshing, a position vis-a-vis either Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ issues. And as we're seeing the profession evolve and the movement towards licensure at graduation, I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about, do you see in maybe Taubman or in schools of architecture in the future, the possibility of like a a student practitioner where the edging of practice is starting to blur? It used to be that the practice was, you know, the theory were kind of blurring. Now it seems like that practice is moving into the education. And I'm wondering how in this environment and with the politics that exist today and the changing of the licensure, do you see that happening more? I mean, to a greater extent, 
beyond what I would know from Sambo down in um, Auburn. I think it's Auburn. And then from other styles of education in the country. That's a that's a big question, but a good one <laughs> to be asking. I have a few, maybe a few different ways of framing it. The first is that if I were able to work with colleagues to build an architecture curriculum from scratch, I think I certainly, and probably most of us, would think in very different ways about the curriculum categories and the categories of knowledge and capacity that we're helping our students develop. Categories like history theory, structures, building technology, professional practice probably don't reflect the state of thinking or practice in quite the way we would want them to. And so to me, we do the best by our students if we introduce systems of practice from day one in architectural education and keep cycling back to them even as we go deep on more specialized subjects. Uh, And the question of practice for me is not fully captured by the IPAL program, the Licensure Upon Graduation Initiative. That's absolutely a, a positive development and an important pathway for students who are aiming at licensed architectural practice and legitimately want to shorten the the time they have to work from starting their degree programs to achieving licensure. Yeah, I strongly support that initiative. It has a it has a social equity dimension. It has a reducing student indebtedness dimension. You know, it it's it's one way of doing right by students for whom that's the goal. But there are so many other kinds of practice that professional licensure doesn't capture. And we see architectural knowledge deployed in the world in so many different ways, from conventional client-driven practice to consultancies in, let's say, in the health field, or specialized research in building technology and building sector innovation, to working with not-for-profits or community groups, municipalities, to startups where people might be patenting intellectual property related to architecture and building and design or starting companies using a different kind of practice model. But for me, those questions of practice are both pragmatic. How am I going to earn a living? Something that we, we, we don't always direct on in any undergraduate degree programs, but they also are ethical and they're, they're about how can I have the kind of impact on the world that I want to have. And so the first part of my answer, Candy, your question would be that questions of practice, I think, are fundamental to a good educational enterprise, opened up ideally in many different ways, and also through summer internships and employment opportunities and travel study and things that open to students a multitude of paths forward that they might want to pursue. But there's a maybe a longer-term vision, which is that of maybe delivering architectural learning and education in a in a different set of formats. And this is where I'm thinking about the disruptions that we talk a lot about in and around higher education, technological disruptions, new business models, the unbundling of higher education as people anticipate that the package of learning that we offer in a degree program as a one-shot three to five-year deal of full-time study in residence in a face-to-face community. So when we look at the MOOCs or micro-credentials or low-residency degree programs, other kinds of innovations in how students learn and how we teach them, certainly architecture programs are going to be among the last to be strongly impacted by these developments, partly because I don't think people have found 
good solutions yet for teaching design in these new modalities, and partly because the culture design studio is such a strong foundation, you know, as a face-to-face, physically embodied, residentially-based community of learners. But, you know, when we imagine, people sometimes call it the open-loop university, where they imagine people, lifelong learners, consuming, you know, engaging with our teaching in smaller doses, interleaved with activity out in the workforce and in practice. I think that's a very promising model. It doesn't necessarily work with the timeline for conventional architectural licensure, but if we think about the technological changes in architecture as well as in education, I think there are all kinds of or you know or changing standards around sustainability or changing expectations around learning a global history of architecture that attends to a diversity of experiences rather than a single western canon told from a, an elite perspective there are all kinds of updated kinds of knowledge and capacity that people want to tap into and so i would like to think that we could move over time toward a more an opened up temporality and geography for how students learn so that even once they're engaged in practice, their relationship to Taubman College or to other institutions of learning is not closed off, but is a continuing multidimensional lifelong engagement. Maybe we can go back and talk a little bit about Aggregate, the Aggregate Architectural History Collaborative. Maybe, you know, kind of go back to where that started, how that started, what it is. Does it inform you as an academic in, in the way that you approach education? Yeah, for sure. The first thing to know is that Aggregate, I guess for, for those who haven't encountered it before, this is a group that some colleagues and I formed now, I think it's about 11 years ago, initiated by Arindam Dutta at MIT, who convened a group of people to strategize how we could create a framework for advancing scholarship in architectural history that approached our field from a less insular set of perspectives and focused less on telling the story of architects and their works in a fairly disciplinarily insular way, and instead connected architecture to finance, to bureaucracy and state policy, to the big developments of macroeconomics or long-term technological change, and to really try to bring this sense to research and to teaching. And the group started out as collaborative of 10 people. It has grown by a couple of people over the years. And it has been a very powerful framework for my intellectual development. A little bit like going back to grad school for a, you know, a postdoctoral immersion course because a lot of the fellow members in this group are about 10 years behind me in their careers, meaning that when when they started their doctoral work and engaged in dissertation research, they were working with a whole different set of reference points and methodologies than those that I had learned. And so it's been a great framework for self-education through peer collaboration. At a more pragmatic level, we published a book together called Governing by Design, which tried to pull together our independent research trajectories into an overview of what this method might look like. And then we established a website a few years ago through which we publish our own work, the work of others, commentaries, quick response projects like that Black Lives Matter collection that you referred to earlier. And 
so it's been great having a framework for cultivating this conversation that we weren't didn't see fully reflected in our main conferences and journals. And I think the visibility of our work in the book and the website has actually fed back into the field and that now we have helped to foster a greater attention to this big picture framing of architecture. And then just the last thought about aggregate is it is amazing to have a crew of people you trust who will support you, but will also challenge you pretty robustly and pretty freely in intellectual terms. And so to me, this kind of forming a collaborative and working together is a, is a great model that I see other people adopting, like the Architectural History Teaching Collaborative that Vikram Prakash and Mark Jarzenbeck have led for the past few years with Mellon Foundation funding. I think it's a great model for self-development among peers. And, and that that gets right to what I wanted to ask you about, is which is the it states on the website that, and I'm going to quote just a little bit before I get to my question. It says, this is a quote from the aggregate website, critical thought in architecture thrives on a combination of the substantiated and the unsubstantiated, the descriptive as much as the rhetorical. We encourage published writing in all of these forms. And I'm really fascinated by the fact that it's a peer-reviewed process, that you're, you know, sort of, on the one hand, we have Architect and the forums, which are totally not peer-reviewed, right? It's completely free-for-all. And that's the, the joy in many ways and the tragedy of the internet is that we, things can just be a free-for-all. Then you have something like Medium, which I don't really understand what Medium is. I feel like there's some kind of accountability, but maybe not much. It's frustrated me enough. I haven't explored it. And then on aggregate, it's like, okay, I know I'm going to find something here that is quality. It may be nutty. It may be, as you say, unsubstantiated and, and rhetorical, but it will be quality because of that peer review process. So I wanted to ask sort of how your, your, your sensibility around that, what we would call an expertise process you know, plays out in the world of the, the wild west of the internet where people can just put uh, up anything. Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's an interesting perspective, Donna, and I really appreciate it. We have tried to do, I think you summarized pretty well one of our objectives, which was to use peer review as a fundamental method for accrediting knowledge, but to open up territory for work that might not fit into a conventional scholarly journal format of the six, you know, in our field, it's often a 6,000 word you know, scholarly essay that fits into one of a journal's publication categories. And I was particularly interested, I think Meredith Tenhor and I within the group were were the ones who were maybe most passionate about the internet as a platform for formats of writing and of, of sharing knowledge that you can't replicate in print. So things like slideshows or embedded video, the capacity also for people to share the work widely and quickly, the chance to respond at maybe a slightly faster pace than in a print journal to a, a, a lively social question like the Black Lives Matter movement. All of those things really a, appealed to us. And it's been interesting to me, I, I can share a piece on aggregate with you know family members and friends outside of the field. And because there's no paywall and it's not formatted in serif font on ivory paper like some scholars journals, it 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 has a, a chance to make it into their into their reading lists as well. But I think one of the decisions we made, you know, the essence of the group has been peer workshopping of scholarship. And we've we've done this for one another for more than a decade now, where when we meet typically twice per year for a day or two at a time, we spend a lot of our time 
face-to-face workshopping work in progress by members of the group and increasingly by colleagues who aren't part of aggregate. And that has been an invaluable form of peer review of a different kind than the double-blind peer review that you get at many journals. I don't think any of us would say that one is categorically better than the other. I think we see room in the field for multiple kinds of peer review, and we felt that the open peer review that we do, in which the reviewers are not blind, but they're, you know, they're in direct dialogue with the author, and sometimes even face-to-face, that we have found that it, it sometimes yields a higher quality of engagement and deeper deeper development of the thinking than in arm's length, blind peer review organized by an editor at a journal. So we see these as complementary modalities, but something that does try to move that accreditation process into a more accessible online forum. I'd like to go back to your position of dean at at, uh, CCA. This hasn't been the first time that we've talked to an incoming dean that hasn't yet, you know, fully jumped into the role. You're brand new at uh, Taubman. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your time at CCA. What were your objectives there? Well, during 13 years as a faculty member at Syracuse University, I really matured a lot. I started right out of my PhD as an assistant you know, tenure track professor. And I was lucky to have very good faculty mentoring by colleagues at Syracuse, including the dean at the time that I was there, Mark Robbins, who really brought, I think, great leadership as dean of the School of Architecture. Uh, He worked very closely with the chancellor of Syracuse University at the time, Nancy Cantor, who actually had come from University of Michigan, where she was provost, and brought it turns out a lot of Michigan DNA to Syracuse. But the two of them together really elevated the School of Architecture by showing how we could connect our scholarly and practice expertise to matters of broad common uh, of broad concern, things like economic development for Rust Belt cities along the Erie Canal Corridor. And I found that really inspiring. And so my move into academic leadership, first as chair of the Bachelor of Architecture program at Syracuse, was inspired by this understanding that I could work as both a discipline expert and a citizen, if you will, and could help set up faculty and students to do high-quality work that also was meaningful to constituencies, both in architecture and and in a broader world. And I did that also at the university senate level at Syracuse, working on university-wide issues. And so when I went to CCA, what excited me was the chance to continue that kind of leadership, but at a higher level where I had a bigger chance to shape the conversation. And CCA was a great place to do that. You know, you might know from reputation or from interactions with, with folks there that it is, it is a place that punches above its weight. It's a fairly young program. I think it's only been about 30 years since the first architecture graduates came out of CCA. And yet the faculty and students there have, have really built the place up very, in a very powerful way. So I benefited from working with a very entrepreneurial faculty, very dynamic and full of ideas about architecture by itself and also about its relationship to the tech sector and its connection to issues like resilience or housing affordability, both kind of futurists teaching students how to 
build robots and urbanists helping students figure out how the skills of architects could tackle the housing crisis in the Bay. So it was a great experience and a great education for me in how to position architecture a little bit differently vis-a-vis interaction design or user experience or technological innovation. And I think that's part of what made me a, a strong candidate to faculty here at Taubman College who recognized in the way of working that we developed at CCA some affinities to stuff that they do here in urban planning, in architecture, and across the two. So how would you characterize the program at Taubman? What makes it unique? One of the things that drew me to Taubman College and and the University of Michigan is that it has a fairly distinctive combination of very strong, long-established powerhouse professional preparation, especially in architecture, which is 80% of our portfolio here. Also in urban planning, which is, is a smaller program, but where also the master's degree program is robustly, you know, well-regarded, well highly ranked, preparing students to shape the field of planning. So Taubman has this very central position in professional education in architecture. We've got something like 11,000 alumni of the college, a deep history, big class sizes, dominant school in the Midwest, really an impact on architectural education and practice bigger than Syracuse or CCA. So that that was a one appeal, it was a chance to take the ideas that I had formed in my work at CCA and Syracuse and those that I was hearing from colleagues in the field and move them forward at a place that has bigger capacity and bigger impact. But the second thing that spoke to me very powerfully are the advanced research capacities of Taubman and of the University of Michigan. University of Michigan is at the very top of public research universities in the volume of research it does, in the number of PhDs granted every year. It's really a formidable place. And Taubman College plugs into that and manifests that strength with its PhD program in architecture, with specializations in building technology and design studies and history and theory. And the new Master of Science degree tracks that Monica Ponce de Leon started over the last few years are building up those capacities for more specialized work, complementing the MARC program and and feeding into the PhD. So there's a very strong master uh, MS program in digital and material technologies that activates the capacities of the Fab Lab and alignments with the Robotics Institute and the College of Engineering and some of those really specialized capacities that most of architecture don't possess. And there's a MS program in design and health that is building relationships to the School of Medicine here and nursing, kinesiology, public health, disciplines that operate at the very top of their fields in a sector, healthcare, that is expanding, that everyone cares about, that we understand is going to have a huge impact on our quality of life and, you know, the vitality of our populations. And so, Taubman is increasingly activating the powers, the capacities of the University of Michigan as a whole to tee up students and faculty to do advanced research in architecture, but also transcending what an architecture program by itself can do. And I guess the other thing I should mention is 
there's a powerful commitment to social justice and to equity here at Taubman College that, that spoke very deeply to me. It's manifest in the urban planning program, which works quite a lot in and with in Detroit and with Detroiters, testing ideas about how an abandoned city with a devastated economy can can rebuild and can do so in a humane and equitable way. The Michigan Architecture Program and other initiatives on the architecture side have been self-consciously tackling issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion in architecture. The Architecture Prep Program is a high school program funded by the university with some support from the Mellon Foundation in which we offer architectural education to students from several Detroit public schools who study with our faculty and get a free introduction to architectural learning that isn't available in just about any high school systems that I know of, and that is building pathways into the profession for people who may be first-generation college students who might not have access to the high level of undergraduate education that we offer here by other routes. And so the, you know, the commitment to building a, a more just world that is strong here at Taubman spoke to me as well. That's really exciting. You know, I think, and we have spoken on the podcast before about the many, many people who have said the way to get a diverse field of architecture of practitioners is to get people young, to get students in when they're, you know, still young and they they maybe don't even know what an architect is. So that's really, yeah. that's super cool that that's a, a program. What's the program called again? Say the name of it again. It's called Michigan Architecture Prep. Okay. And Excellent. It, it's about two and a half years old. So it's up and running and it has graduated a couple of cohorts and we are excited to keep building and see what we can learn from it about potential other pathways into architectural learning at the high school level. You know, Donna, what you were just talking about makes think about how much I've learned from collateral organizations in, in the field. So that point that you just made about the need to introduce architectural learning to people at an early age, Tony Griffin, at when she was at the Max Bond Center at CUNY, completed a study with some partners that suggested that middle school is a decisive opportunity. And so we might think about trying to start even sooner. Mm-hmm. High school is quite important, as you noted. There are Things like National Organization of Minority Architects, which runs a similar summer camp program called Project Pipeline. The Equity by Design Committee of San Francisco's AIA chapter is an extraordinary center for thinking about best practices, mostly around gender equity in architecture, but tackling also ethnic and cultural and socioeconomic access. The architecture lobby is working on this stuff from a different perspective. Who Builds Your Architecture is raising these questions around construction methods and workforces. I think it's a very exciting time in our field with lots of groups generating insight onto the many different ways that we can pursue justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion in building the future of our profession. Yeah, even Michelle Obama knew the right answer to that question. <laughs> when the president of the AIA was asking her about how we should go about tackling the problem of uh, diversity in the profession. Well, if I could just tack on one quick sure. thing, I, I want to add one other perspective. I initially thought about this question mostly as evangelizing architectural learning to audiences who might not find it on their own. But I've increasingly focused on a corollary process that we need to do complete, which is to recognize that our choice of 
curricular topics and the formats that we offer education in are also frameworks that inherently advantage and disadvantage certain constituencies that the content of our curricula might actually just seem irrelevant to a more diverse range of constituencies who say, quit telling me how great Le Corbusier was and help me understand, let's say, how African-American creativity has manifested itself in the built environment over the years. I think we also need to take the lack of diversity as a feedback saying that, in fact, we aren't necessarily offering the education or the practice environment that makes this a compelling choice for people, talented people who have other options. And so I'd, I'd like to use, you know, use the diversity question as a chance to also scrutinize what is the core of architectural knowledge and are there ways for us to reconstruct that to create a field that will be more compelling for a broader range of people. Right on. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> You've got me on my at the pulpit now. <laughs> no, and, and you're kind of leading to a few different thoughts I was uh, wondering about. And, and um, I guess I'll have the, the first because it's most connected to what you just were talking about. University of Michigan is a public university, and these are really challenging topics that tend to push buttons. And you're in a state that is generally, by and large, uh, obviously, a, a, obviously a white state. I mean, you know, it's run by a Republican who sees an idea that's sitting city managers in to run governments mm-hmm. and has abrogated its responsibility or abnegated its responsibility to dealing with, you know, and the water issues in Flint. Sure. I mean, so, I mean, these are really, really important. Just, you know, here in Minneapolis, um, I'm, you know, trying hard to recognize and understand my privilege and trying to see if there's a way I could, you know, uh, give work to minority owned contracting businesses. They just don't exist. Mm-hmm. And I start to wonder why is that? Why is that happening? Why does that? And I think it's one thing to train people in a trade, but I think if you don't have, you know, we don't have a lot of black home ownership in in this country. I mean, how do we expect there to be foundational businesses to kind of take care of homes that they don't own? But I'm wondering, how do you manage to deal with these very hot button issues? These these topics that tend to, whenever you bring up Black Lives Matter, someone gets defensive and automatically goes all lives matter or it gets, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about the diversity question, how do we acknowledge our own defensiveness and still say, well, yeah, I'm, I feel it, but we still need to solve the problem. Yeah, that's a great question. And one of the things that drew me to Taubman College is that Michigan is at the very heart of that naughty set of questions. It is a state that's been very much in the public eye for the past few years for questions of city governance, as you just noted, or providing the basis for well-being in the form of clean water. Absolutely central to some of those conversations. And of course, since the presidential election, there's been an increased sense that the future of our national politics is in part being worked out here in Michigan around questions that planning and architecture touch on, questions of uh, municipal infrastructure and how can we provide ourselves with clean drinking water in cities that have lost a big part of their tax base and have inherited infrastructures that weren't designed to work with a smaller population or a smaller investment base. How can we model forms of governance that address pension obligations and municipal debt 
without resorting to undemocratic methods like appointed city managers? How can we generate new planning knowledge and maybe also new ways of designing, developing, and building housing? On the one hand, for majority-minority legacy city like Detroit, and on the other hand, for predominantly white small towns, cities, and rural communities that are facing their own kinds of disinvestment and their own loss of economic prospects. And, you know, Michigan is where one of the places where those questions are, are going to work themselves out and where people are trying really hard. I've been inspired by President Mark Schlissel, the, you know, and the peer at University of Michigan, that there is a strong commitment to tackling those problems through a concerted multidisciplinary effort on poverty solutions, for instance. Um, There's a strong sense here that one of our missions of the Public Research University is to help people figure out what the next economy is for folks who might have worked in the automotive industry, still have skills and expertise, but don't have a clear way to deploy those in the emerging advanced manufacturing, autonomous vehicles economy. And so, you know, I think a lot about the example of Pittsburgh as a, you know, a city that has pretty successfully translated its legacy industrial expertise into new economy pursuits. I think, you know, not just Detroit, but also Grand Rapids and Flint and many other parts of the state have similar challenges and and possibilities with a different set of skills and a different group of people. And that's part of our mission is is to work on that and to see if we can we can prototype strategies, you know, forward paths. So two thoughts about how that's happening at Michigan. One of them, Taubman College has partnered with Detroit Planning and Development, the office led by Maurice Cox, whom you guys I'm sure know. And we have our some a group of something like a dozen architecture studios working directly with people in planning and development to model housing and other neighborhood development and design strategies that dovetail with the city's redevelopment plans and revitalization plans. So our students are actually working with the planners to test to generate ideas that might get implemented in Detroit and are running kind of architectural scenarios that may help to change the reality on the ground there. In parallel, University of Michigan, you probably saw that New York Times article on M-City, the autonomous vehicle research facility here on North Campus right next to the Taubman College. I see that as Michigan partnering with automotive companies and other experts to see what what is the next economy for an industry that really shaped this region powerfully. And can we find, you know, can we beat Tesla and Google or work with them to find strategies here that will unlock economic development possibilities for people in the region? So that, that ties a little into my, and I know we're skipping a little around here in this conversation, but I just got back from Exhibit Columbus. And I know you're brand new to Taubman and maybe haven't gotten a chance to really see the the University of Michigan Exhibit Columbus student project by uh, Mick Kennedy was the faculty advisor for it. It's exceptionally Midwestern in really good ways that I say as a Midwesterner is are really good ways. Like it, it speaks to the local industry as well as the local Flora and fauna, you know, it's the, the name of the piece is Cloud Bank. And so is there now you've been out east, you've been out 
Southwest and now you're in the middle. Can you talk a little more about, again, specifically not just, you know, not just Detroit, but the Midwest in, as a greater region and how you, you feel like you can impact things based on this feedback loop of what do you see happening here and then how do you address that and make it better? Yeah, the short answer is that's a category where I still have a lot to learn. You just got here. <laughs> so on one of my first days in the building, that Taubman exhibit was being packed into a truck and, and was heading off to Columbus. And so all I saw was the outside of the truck. <laughs> I, and I haven't had a chance to, to see any installation shots. I saw a couple things on our Instagram, but I, you know, you're you're right that there's aspects of even stuff that's happening right now that I still have to learn. In terms of a bigger philosophy of the the role of the Midwest in architecture culture, in in architecture and planning innovation, I, I definitely am looking around and learning a lot. As as a scholar of American architecture, you know, I'm deeply steeped in the history of Louis Sullivan and Frank Lloyd Wright and Daniel Burnham and the whole uh, Chicago School, and I'm very attuned to the Michigan modern history with the Saarinens and Florence Knoll and Herman Miller and Yamasaki and uh, so many other uh, folks who really defined mid-century modernism in architecture, furniture, and design. But I, I have yet to develop a concerted framework for understanding what the what the Midwest has to offer today and and where it's heading in the future but that won't stop me from speculating here are a couple <laughs> of thoughts one is water mm-hmm. that's huge water is a huge issue for the future of our planet and and everyone on it and the great lakes is one of the world's great reservoirs of of fresh water. And so the work that our planning faculty and some of our architecture faculty are doing around coastal community, freshwater coastal communities, around water infrastructures like the issues in Benton Harbor and Flint and other places that you alluded to, water in developing societies in, you know, in the favelas of Sao Paulo or in the townships of South Africa, we have a kind of water network that is strongest in planning, but also has an architecture dimension. So that's certainly one area. I've been thinking a lot about the resurgence of timber with new engineering, you know, new new technologies of working with wood and using it again for all purposes. And I don't know much yet about the, the timber industry in the upper Midwest and in Canada, but it seems like in the push for biomaterials research, we might find that wood is a you know, because it's a carbon sink and it's a renewable resource and it links rural and urban areas in interesting ways, I think we might find some opportunity in in biomaterials, including, you know, very traditional things like wood mobilized in new ways. But also definitely, you know, there is a sense here of a Detroit School of Urban Studies and the understanding that because it's an extreme case of prosperity, sprawl, abandonment, legacy infrastructure, and now experimentation with new modes of urban revitalization that can happen here because of the excess of space and raw material and the low cost of land. I think there's a strong possibility that our work abandonment and legacy cities will generate strategies that will be relevant to other post-industrial communities around North America, in Europe. We we have some research partnerships in the Ruhr Valley. And even in China, where from what I understand, there's 
there's already some problems of urban abandonment as a result of mismatches between planned economy and the the emerging market economy. So, Jonathan, the Talmud doesn't have a BR, correct? Correct. We have a BS in architecture is our undergraduate degree. So I've been pretty critical of, of programs that didn't have a BR that kind of transitioned students from a bachelor of science into a master's. But, and I, I'm not, I'm saying this and hope you don't get the wrong impression that I'm just saying this because you're on the podcast and, and I, we happen to enjoy that what you've been saying so far, but <laughs> you laid out a case, which I, in my first question, you, you pretty much kind of, I think you, in a lot of ways you answered this question already, but it's not the sole goal. I mean, it, I think one of the things I think a lot of people have been struggling with about the profession is that profession and the education of, of young architects and, and future professionals is, um, one, obviously the student debt becomes a problem. So when you go from a bachelor of science, you get into a master's, you're paying all these high tuition costs and, and fees and, and uh, those kinds of things. But really, you've talked a lot about a program and an institution that really looks at the as a the idea of a professional, not so much practicing architecture, but as a profession, it extends beyond the beyond the BR, beyond the the you know the the AREs, beyond the IDP. That really that the 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 goal of the institution there is to really develop a different kind of student or in a different kind of graduate. It, is that kind of and, I, and like I said, I've really been pretty critical because I mostly because of the student debt issue, and and mm-hmm. mostly because I think a lot of students who don't understand when they go into a program that I've heard this a number of times when we've talked about it on the podcast that some students get into these programs and they think that they actually ask me, how do you have an architecture? How do you have a license? You have only have a bachelor's degree. And I go, I have a BR. I have a first professional degree as a BR. I said, you got your MR. Do you plan on teaching with that? And a lot of them say, no, they're like, they want to be a practitioner. So how do you how do you kind of make sure that the students understand? And and like I said, I think you've really done a really great job of telling me and telling the listeners about what the program is about. So if I'm asking a question that's already been answered, please forgive me. Well, one part of the answer is that you know, for me personally, this is my first time working in the context of a of a four plus two program with a bachelor of science undergraduate um, format. I've taught previously in uh, BA programs, you know, liberal arts programs that teach architecture and in with MARC students and with BARC students. But I'm new to the four plus two universe, as we might call it. And, and so I, I don't have a lot of firsthand insight into that. I think there are, you know, I, I hope I haven't suggested that I see that, that I would want to wholesale change the format of learning here at Taubman College. I, I, I think we serve students and, and our society best when we open up multiple paths to learning and multiple paths to entering the profession in whatever capacity and basically empower students to go out and pursue their goals by a few different channels. So undergraduate education in architecture, I think, is quite important, partly for some of those same pipeline reasons that we talked about with high school and even middle school students, that if if architecture is offered only at the graduate level, which is not what you're suggesting, then, you know, there's an even smaller group of people who have a chance to learn and to and to enter. So one of the virtues of undergraduate programs in general, whether they're BARC, BS, or BA, is that, you know, they, they provide a starting point and I was initially quite skeptical of BARC education when I arrived at Syracuse. I worried about excessive professionalization, but I found 
that I was actually kind of in, in awe of the capacities that BRC students developed in our program at Syracuse, that they felt got a very well-rounded education while also developing some really concrete capacities that they could put to work in, in architecture practice or in another field. And, I, you know, the, the BS is, is somewhere in between that full commitment and the light touch of a, of a BA with a major in architecture. Um, and I'm sure that for many students, that's the right balance go into graduate school and with advanced standing, or it lets them pursue a different passion and do an MBA or uh, work in, in the field in another way. I, I don't know that everybody necessarily wants a an NAAB accredited degree. No, that's a good point. But I hear you. I mean, I, I, I hear your concerns, and <laughs> I think they're they're good ones to have. What do you anticipate are the biggest challenges you're going to be facing as the new dean at Taubman? I think maybe some of the biggest challenges are finding a path forward for meaningful enhancement of pathways to architectural learning. Michigan has a very strong academic innovation group. This is a group that works across campus to help faculty and students develop new modalities of teaching and learning, often technology-enhanced, but uh, but not always. Um, and, and so it's certainly something we're going to be working on. But I think, you know, legacy, long-standing, strong degree programs that have, you know, robust professional accreditation, it takes a lot of work and, and plenty of time to make a dent in how we do things. And I think one of the big challenges will be finding concrete paths forward to pilot some things and to try some new teaching and learning strategies that we can learn from and can potentially start to implement on a on a bigger scale. So I think it's, you know, when you come into a, a big place that's got strong programs and a strong history, you know, the opportunity to try new things, I, I'm sure is inherently a little more challenging than an upstart place or at a at a place with, you know, less at stake. So the dean that you are replacing is Monica Ponce de Leon, which uh, you mentioned earlier. Uh, she's now the dean at, at Princeton, where you actually got your both your undergraduate degree and your doctoral degree. Did you guys get a chance to, to talk about the schools, maybe offer each other tips? We've talked a little bit. Monica was very generous this summer in offering her insight and her experience and, you know, her thoughts about uh, what she and the faculty had accomplished here at Taubman and, and where we might, where we might go in the future. Um, and she was just back on Friday when we dedicated our new wing, a Alfred Taubman wing that, uh, she envisioned and fundraised for and, uh, developed with Preston Scott Cohen. And so we had a chance to talk then quite a bit about Michigan past, present and future, but, we didn't get to turn to Princeton yet. I certainly am excited to see what her leadership brings to my double alma mater. Um, <laughs> and I think it's going to be a great era for the school. Do you have plans to develop relationships with departments or schools at, at UM outside of the architecture department? Yeah, for sure. A couple of things are already in place. Things like the uh, certificate in real estate development that we offer jointly with the Ross School of Business. This MS degree program in design and health has relationships with faculty in some of the health disciplines and the expertise in 
digital and material technologies benefits from faculty alignment with College of Engineering, which is right next to us and is one of the biggest and most uh, research-intensive parts of University of Michigan. So certainly those are some of the directions we'll be building further with engineering, business, and the health sciences or health fields more generally. But we also have some good collaborations with literature, science, and the arts. For instance, (laughs) this egalitarian metropolis uh, project that Milton Curry led when he was here as associate dean that's funded by a Mellon grant and is is mobilizing both humanistic and architectural and urban expertise to think about how to promote um, equity in, in our city, around the world. And one of the keys to the strength of a, of a big research institution like University of Michigan is that not to go too far with top-down initiatives, but to always be open to faculty-initiated paths. And, and I think the strongest multidisciplinary collaborations come from strong faculty alliances. And so I think a, a big part of our success is to balance strategic thinking and strategic planning and intentional relationship building according to a, a vision and a plan with an openness to the ad hoc faculty partnerships that bubble up and sometimes contain the key to a whole future area of knowledge and, and practice. You mentioned speaking with Monica at the opening of the new wing how, how did that event go? We uh, The building looks beautiful. We're hoping to talk to Preston Scott Cohen uh, about, the, about the design of the new building soon. The building is beautiful. It is 36,000 square feet, which is about 50% of the square footage we occupy in our existing building. So it's a big enhancement uh, just at, at a raw square footage level. It has glorious faculty offices with windows, which is, uh, I think, a good baseline that we now can hit. That's a huge change. Yeah. When I was there and I was only there briefly, most of the, the, I think all of the faculty offices had, it was just this long, relentless four foot wide ACT width corridor and all the offices were off it. So faculty (laughs) are now in great offices that face one another across a series of bays for collaboration amongst themselves and with graduate students and so forth. We've got a beautiful new studio space, but the the heart of it is really this glorious two, two and a half story commons that is much bigger than any space we had previously, but it also is formatted differently. It is a, a, a big atrium with with a large floor plate that when I gave my inaugural lecture there Friday night, I felt like I was at La Scala or in some other amazing opera house because (laughs) I looked out onto us. I think there were about 250 people in chairs. And then there were another 100, 150 people lying in the room on the second and third levels on ramps and galleries that the architects provided. So it's a, a glorious space where we can come together in a way that hasn't been possible before. We can do go big on lectures and seat audiences way beyond the capacity of our auditorium, but we're also planning to use it for workshops, for um, conferences, for pinups and reviews and big displays and presentations of student work. So, And I think it's going to have a kind of casual social life apart from those programmed events. And the whole thing is orchestrated with Scott Cohen's incredibly precise and nuanced attention to geometry and visual experience. So it, it's aesthetically superb and a wash in daylight, which, as you may know, is also a, a highly valued commodity here at Common <laughs> College. So 
Yeah, so I think that that's going to make a huge difference. And just in terms of the dedication on Friday, uh, I couldn't be luckier than to step into the college at a time when it is has completed this big capital project and is launching a new phase in a glorious new facilities. Also because it meant that on, on Thursday and Friday of last week, a bunch of our alumni, the president of the university, other deans, several members of the Taubman family, the, the, the Taubman College community near and far really came together and gathered in, in the new building for a day and a half. And I got a chance to meet so many key people who have been part of the success of this place and have ideas and networks and, and capacities to contribute to our future success. So it was really, really a wonderful way to to enter this new role. So if you listen to our podcast from last week where we spoke with Koganada, who directed the movie Columbus, I mentioned that I have a, a visual image from when I was there 30 years ago and someone was, a life drawing model was smoking out in the courtyard of the University of Michigan, of the Taubman building. <laughs> Do people still gather in the courtyard and smoke or is that, uh, what, I, like, where do the smokers go now? <laughs> my office looks out onto the courtyard, which I love. Yeah. And I've seen people eating lunch and um, holding seminars and uh, stuff like that, but I haven't seen any cigarettes. You're maybe not allowed to anymore. I mean, it might be considered a smoke-free building at this point, which would mean that the... the... I'm pretty sure that we're considered a smoke-free campus, in fact. Oh, okay. So, well, then, oh, my goodness. Wow. You know, we have we have gorgeous woods and meadows all around. Perhaps there are <laughs> secret smoking societies that meet, meet by the pond. I don't doubt it. <laughs> well, it's been... Great talking to you guys. Just two quick questions. So what are you um, reading and what are you listening to these days? Ah, And that's it. That's all we ask. <laughs> well, I think my reading habits have taken a hit with this job transition. And so um, I managed to read one novel this whole summer by Garth Greenwell. Um, and in the field of of architecture and planning, I mostly have been reading faculty research summaries and the works of our of our faculty, things like Andrew Hersher's Unreal Estate Guide to Detroit or Kim Kinder's book DI Detroit. I've been really trying to immerse myself in the discourse of of the college and of of the community here. And then in terms of in terms of listening, I mostly use my podcast time to to keep up with national politics, and so. You know, on my on, on my way to and from work, I'm often listening to the Slate Political Gab Fest or yeah. Left, Right, and Center or the New Yorker politics because yeah, there's so much going on and it pulls me out of my work life for a few moments. Usually, you go into your work life to pull you out of the politics, but you use the politics to pull you out of your work life. <laughs> well, the, you know, it, it's basically like Greek tragedy and uh, an Amy yes. Schumer comedy. Sadly, yes, that's exactly where we are. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, guys. And uh, we wish you the best of luck in your new position. And we're excited to watch how uh, how things change over there. Thanks. I I have really appreciated learning from our connect over the years and uh, your your invitation to contribute to the Dean's Forum after the presidential election really spurred and, and crystallized some of my thinking, as has this conversation. So I look forward to more. Oh, excellent. That's so great to That's hear. That's great to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks to Jonathan for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. 
And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks so much and talk to you next time. Are you there? <laughs> what the hell am I hearing? Oh my god. <laughs> I totally can't. You sound like a science fiction robot. <laughs> Oh dear, I'm thinking you need to call me back if you can hear me right now.